Hey, this is Tammy Rose, and this is the second part of the chapter, The Pond in Winter. Um, And you better bundle up because this chapter is all about ice, the ice fort, ice fort cove, how to cut ice, and Henry going out on the ice. Um, They send him off into the water and a little ice cake for him to take some measurements. So come along, but bundle up. The Pond in Winter, Part 2 In order to see how nearly I could guess, with this experience, at the deepest point in a pond, by observing the outlines of its surface and the character of its shores alone, I made a plan of White Pond, which contains about 41 acres, and, like this, has no island in it, nor any visible inlet or outlet, and, as the line of greatest breath felt very near the line of least breath, where two opposite capes approached each other and two opposite bays receded, I ventured to mark a point a short distance from the latter line, but still on the line of greatest length as the deepest. The deepest part was found to be within 100 feet of this, still farther in the direction to which I had inclined, and was only one foot deeper, namely 60 feet. Of course, a stream running through or an island in the pond would make the problem much more complicated. If we knew all the laws of nature, we should only need one fact or the description of one actual phenomenon to infer all the particular results at that point. Now we know only a few laws and our result is vitiated, not of course by any confusion or irregularity in nature, but by our ignorance of essential elements in the calculation. Our notions of law and harmony are commonly confined to those instances which we detect, but the harmony which results from a far greater number of seemingly conflicted but really concurring laws, which we have not detected, is still more wonderful. The particular laws are, as our points of view, as to the traveler, a mountain outline varies with every step, and it has an infinite number of profiles, though absolutely but one form. Even when cleft or bored through, it is not comprehended in its entireness. What I have observed of the pond is no less true in ethics. It is the law of average. Such a rule of the two diameters not only guides us towards the sun in the system and the heart in man, but draw a line through the length and breadth of the aggregate of a man's particular daily behaviors and waves of life into his coves and inlets, and where they intersect will be the height or depth of his character. Perhaps we need only to know how his shores trend and his adjacent country or circumstances to infer his depth and concealed bottom. If he is surrounded by mountainous circumstances, an Achillean shore whose peaks overshadow and are reflected in his bosom, they suggest a corresponding depth in him. But a low and smooth shore proves him shallow on that side. In our bodies, a bold projecting brow falls off to and indicates a corresponding depth of thought. Also, there is a bar across the entrance of our every cove or particular inclination. Each is our harbor for a season in which we are detained and partially landlocked. 
These inclinations are not whimsical usually, but their form, size, and direction are determined by the promontories of the shore, the ancient axes of elevation. When this bar is gradually increased by storms, tides, or currents, or there is a subsidence of the waters, so that it reaches to the surface, that which was at first but an inclination in the shore, in which a thought was harbored, becomes an individual lake cut off from the ocean, wherein the thought secures its own conditions, changes, perhaps from salt to fresh, becomes a sweet sea, dead sea, or a marsh. At the advent of each individual into this life, may we not suppose that such a bar has risen to the surface somewhere? It is true, we are such poor navigators that our thoughts, for the most part, stand off and on upon a harborless coast, are conversant only with the, the bites of the bay and poesy, or steer for the public ports of entry, and go into the dry docks of science, where they merely refit for the world, and no natural currents concur to individualize them. As for the inlet or outlet of Walden, I have not discovered any but rain and snow and evaporation, though perhaps with a thermometer and a line such places may be found, for where the water flows into the pond it will probably be coldest in summer and warmest in winter. When the icemen were at work here in 46-47, the cakes sent to the shore were one day rejected by those who were stacking them up there, not being thick enough to lie side by side with the rest, and the cutters thus discovered that the ice over a small space was two or three inches thinner than elsewhere, which made them think that there was an inlet there. They also showed me another place in what they thought was a leech hole, through which the pond leaked out under a hill into a neighboring meadow, pushing me out on a cake of ice to see it. <laughs> it was a small cavity under 10 feet of water, but I think that I can warrant the pond not to need so soldering till they find a worse leak than that. One has suggested that if such a leech hole should be found, its connection with the meadow, if any existed, might be proved by conveying some color powder or sawdust to the mouth of the hole and then putting a strainer over the spring in the meadow which would catch some of the particles carried through by the current. While I was surveying, the ice, which was 16 inches thick, undulated under a slight wind like water. It is well known that a level cannot be used on ice. At one rod from the shore, its greatest fluctuation, when observed by means of a level on land directed towards a graduated staff on the ice, was three-quarters of an inch, though the ice appeared firmly attached to the shore. It was probably greater in the middle. Who knows, but if our instruments were delicate enough, we might detect an undulation in the crust of the earth. When my two legs, when two legs of my level were on the shore and a third on the ice, and sights were directed over the latter, a rise or fall of the ice of an almost infinitesimal amount made a difference of several feet on a tree across the pond. When I began to cut holes for sounding, there were three or four inches of water on the ice under a deep snow which had sunk it thus far. But the water began immediately to run into these holes and continued to run for two days in deep streams 
which wore away the ice on every side and contributed essentially, if not mainly, to dry the surface of the pond. For as the water ran in, it raised and floated the ice. This was something somewhat like cutting a hole in the bottom of a ship to let the water out. When such holes freeze and a rain succeeds, and finally a new freezing forms a fresh smooth ice over all, it is beautifully modeled internally by dark figures shaped somewhat like a spider's web, what you may call ice rosettes, produced by the channels worn by the water flowing from all sides to a center. Sometimes also when the ice was covered with shallow puddles, I saw a double shadow of myself, one standing on the head of the other, one on the ice, and the other on the trills or on the trees or hillside. While yet it is cold January and snow and ice are thick and solid, the prudent landlord comes from the village to get ice to cool his summer drink. Impressively, even pathetically wise, to foresee the heat and thirst of July, now in January, wearing a thick coat and mittens when so many things are not provided for. It may be that he lays up no treasures in this world which will cool his summer drink in the next. He cuts and saws the solid pond, unroofs the house, the house of fishes, and carts off their very element and air, held fast by chains and stakes like corded wood, through the favoring winter air, to wintry cellars, to underlie the summer there. It looks like solidified azure, as far off it is drawn through the streets. These ice cutters are a merry race, full of jest and sport, and when I went among them, they were wont to invite me to saw pit fashion with them, I standing underneath. In the winter of 46-47, there came a hundred men of Hyperborean extraction swooped down on our pond one morning with many carloads of ungainly-looking farming tools, sleds, plows, drill barrows, turf knives, spades, saws, rakes, and each man was armed with a double-pointed pike staff such as is not described in the New England farmer or the cultivator. I did not know whether they had come to sow a crop of winter rye or some other kind of grain recently introduced from Iceland. As I saw no manure, I judged that they meant to skim the land, as I had done, thinking the soil was deep and had lain fallow long enough. They said that a gentleman farmer, who was behind the scenes, wanted to double his money, which, as I understood, amounted to half a million already. But in order to cover each one of his dollars with another, he took off the only coat, I, the skin itself of Walden Pond, in the midst of a hard winter. They went to work at once, plowing, harrowing, rolling, furrowing, in admirable order, as if they were bent on making this a model farm. But when I was looking sharp to see what kind of seed they dropped into the furrow, a gang of fellows by my side suddenly began to book up the virgin mold itself with a peculiar jerk clean down to the sand, or rather, rather the water, for it was a very springy soil, indeed all the terra firma there was, and haul it away on sleds, and then I guessed that they must be cutting peat in a bog. So they came and went every day, with a peculiar shriek from the locomotive, from and to some point of the polar regions, as it seemed to me, like a flock of arctic snowbirds. But sometimes Squaw Walden had her revenge, and a hired man, 
walking behind his team, slipped through a crack in the ground down towards Tartarus, and he who was so brave before suddenly became but the ninth part of a man, almost gave up his animal heat, and was glad to take refuge in my house and acknowledge that there was some virtue in a stove, or sometimes the frozen soil took a piece of steel out of a plowshare, or a plow got set in a furrow and had to be cut out. Oof. To speak literally, a hundred Irishmen with Yankee overseers came from Cambridge every day to get out the ice. They divided it into cakes by methods too well known to require description, and these, being sledded to the shore, were rapidly hauled off to an ice platform and raised by grappling irons and block and tackle worked by horses onto a stack as surely as so many barrels of flour and there placed evenly side by side and row upon row as they had formed the solid base of an obelisk designed to pierce the clouds. They told me that in a good day they could get out a thousand tons, which was the yield of about one acre. Deep ruts and cradle holes were worn in the ice, as on terra firma, by the passage of the sleds over the same track, and the horses invariably ate their oats out of cakes of ice hollowed out like buckets. They stacked up the cakes, thus, in the open air in a pile 35 feet high on one side, and six or seven rods square, putting hay between the outside layers to exclude the air. For when the wind, though never so cold, finds a passage through, it will wear large cavities, leaving slight supports or studs only here and there, and finally topple it down. At first, it looked like a vast blue fort, or Valhalla, but when they began to tuck the coarse meadow hay into the crevices, and thus became covered with rime and icicles, it looked like a venerable moss-grown and hoary ruin built of azure-tinted marble, the abode of winter, that old man we see in the almanac, his shanty, as if he had a design to estivate with, uh, with us." They calculated that not 25% of this would reach its destination and that 2 or 3% would be wasted in the cars. However, a still greater part of this heap had a different destiny from what was intended, for either because the ice was, the ice was found not to keep so well as was expected, containing more air than usual, or for some other reason it never got to market. This heap, made in the winter of 46-47, and estimated to contain 10,000 tons, was finally covered with hay and boards, and though it was unroofed the following July, and a part of it carried off, the rest remaining exposed to the sun, it stood over that summer and the next winter, and was not quite melted till, till September 1848. Thus, the pond recovered the greater part. Like the water, the Walden ice, seen near at hand, has a green tint, but at a distance is beautifully blue, and you can easily tell it from the white ice of the river or the merely greenish ice of some ponds a quarter of a mile off. Sometimes one of those great cakes slips from the ice man's sled into the village street and lies there for a week like a great emerald, an object of interest to all passers. I have noticed that a portion of Walden, 
which in the state of water was green, will often, when frozen, appear from the same point of view blue. So the hollows about this pond will, sometimes in the winter, be filled with greenish water, somewhat like its own, but the next day will have frozen blue. Perhaps the blue color of water and ice is due to the light in the air they contain, and the most transparent is the bluest. Ice is an interesting subject for contemplation. They told me that they had some in the ice houses at Fresh Pond, five years old, which was as good as ever. Why is it that a bucket of water soon becomes putrid, but frozen remains sweet forever? It is commonly said that this is the difference between the affections and the intellect. (laughs) Thus, for 16 days, I saw from my window a hundred men at work like busy husbandmen with teams and horses and apparently all the implements of farming. Such a picture as we see on the first page of the almanac. And as often as I looked out, I was reminded of the fable of the lark and the reapers or the parable of the sower and the like. Now they all are all gone. And in 30 days more, probably, I shall look from the same window on the pure sea green Walden, Walden water over there, reflecting the clouds and the trees and sending up its evaporations in solitude. And no traces will appear that a man has ever stood there. Perhaps I shall hear a solitary loon laugh as he dives and plumes himself or shall see a lonely fisher in his boat like a floating leaf beholding his form reflected in the waves, where lately a hundred men securely labored. Thus it appears that the sweltering inhabitants of Charleston and New Orleans, of Madras and Bombay and Calcutta, drink at my well. In the morning I bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, since whose composition years of the gods have elapsed, and in comparison with which our modern world and its literature seem puny and trivial, and I doubt if that philosophy is not to be referred to a previous state of existence, so remote is its sublimity sublimity from our conceptions. I lay down the book and go to my well for water, and lo, there I meet the servant of the Brahmin, priest of Brahma and Vishnu and Indra, who still sits in the temple on the Ganges reading the Vedas, or or dwells at the root of a tree with his crust and water jug. I meet his servant come to draw water for his master, and our buckets, as it were, grate together in the same well. The pure Walden water is mingled with the sacred water of the Ganges. With favoring winds, it is wafted past the site of the fabulous islands of Atlantis and the Hesperides, makes the Periplus of Hanno, and floating by Ternate and Tidor, and the mouth of the Persian Gulf, melts in the tropic gales of the Indian seas, and is landed in ports of which Alexander only heard the names. Hey, so... um. This is the commentary for the second part of Pond in Winter. Um, Usually I try to read and then immediately do commentary, um, but because of various uh, reasons, actually no excuse, I think I just didn't have time and didn't plan it well, Um, I'm actually recording this a little bit later, so I refresh my memory by hearing myself talk, which, you know, I think is sometimes an awkward thing, but... um, 
I have been told that my voice helps put people to sleep, and I agree. <laughs> I think that I uh, probably could have a career in a just reading um, uh, storybooks or something for kids, or um, I could probably read the New York Times at a very, you know, slow pace or whatever and, and bore people to sleep. Um, I hope that you are staying awake, however, and um, I hope that, that uh, what I have to say is interesting enough to, uh, um, to, if not keep you awake, then at least give you good dreams. Uh, anyway, so especially the pond in winter, I feel like I, I definitely feel this. I'm recording it actually um, just at the day after a an extreme deep freeze um, that hit New England, like an Arctic blast that like I don't remember. I don't think it's like it's not it's not in my lifetime of memory. Um, and I think that it broke a record that was set like in 1957, which is way before my time, um, about how cold it got. And I think that like negative 10, um, like it got that cold and I, and I think it sort of stayed, um, like that was the, the, it was very weird. So it started, I think, like Friday morning, actually. Usually during the day, it gets warmer. And especially because it was a sunny day, you would think that it would stay warm. Um, but it sort of started at 6 a.m. when it was like 20 degrees. And then it kind of just went down <laughs> precipitously through Friday and into Saturday. Um, and here we are Sunday and it's going to be like 46 today. So it's, it feels very um, balmy. Um, um, I hope that my pipes didn't freeze. I tried to keep everything running, but I, I do think that my, um, that my kitchen drain got stopped up and I'm afraid with ice or something. Um, but I put antifreeze down it. Um, so very, very happy to live in a world where antifreeze is invented and that I just happen to have, um, some spare in the basement. Um, I feel like this, this chapter is all about ice. <laughs> And I definitely feel it. Um, I actually visited Walden Pond. To get back to the topic of Walden, I visited Walden Pond um, this past week, um, Wednesday, so a few days before the, the deep freeze. But um, it was at least 20 degrees in the morning. And um, again, I feel like January and February have been kind of light um, lately in terms of cold. And we certainly haven't had a lot of snow um, and I posted on Facebook um, that, uh, you know, just by putting my, the tip of my boot um, onto the surface of the water, I was able to easily break through um, the ice. And, um, and it kind of made a cool, like, um, cobweb pattern, like, like Henry was talking about. Um, most of this chapter is about the, um, the ice men who are cutting through the ice the summer of 46 to 40, the winter of 46 to 47, um, which I think is really interesting because it shows you that it doesn't like, you know, I don't think every winter, even back then, it would freeze solid enough that you could count on being able to harvest the ice. Um, usually there's, there's some kind of, um, you know, complete freeze over. 
um, cause they, they measure, um, when it, when it ices over and then they also measure ice out, um, which is a term that usually happens, I think in March, you know, it's sort of like, all right, this is, you know, this is when the, the ice has, has completely disappeared. Um, I think last winter people were walking on Walden. Um, I'm always such a chicken. <laughs> I'm kind of terrified of the ice. So even if there's a whole crowd and even if like it's, it's guaranteed to be like 18 inches, I'm still like, cause it's slippery too. So it's not something that I want to casually do. Um, and, and also there are <laughs> swimmers, like I said, um, who will gladly like punch their way through the ice. Um, so, so anyway, when I was there this week it or on Wednesday, it was very thin, but, um, I saw pictures on Facebook where, because it was so windy to the Arctic blast on Friday, um, it had blown the ice to the shores. And so the, it's really interesting to see the ice, um, you know, collecting kind of in clumps and the waves and everything. So it, it, like the, the middle of Walden, I think was not frozen and all the ice had like blown to shore, um, in a really like, not even like a, a, re- a regular pattern, but just like clumps and as if it were waves. And, um, I really feel like ice is this fascinating thing, not just to read about, but to also experience when it's completely f- frozen over. Um, it's really fun to go and like throw rocks on the shore. <coughs> and it's funny cause like people, people are like, oh, but you're, you're denuding the shore of its beautiful rocks. Um, yeah, but the sound that it makes is so like weird and otherworldly. It sounds like something from like a sci-fi. Um, it sounds like a sci-fi effect. Um, anyway, I wanted to also talk about the, uh, the ice fort cove. If you're not familiar with Walden, but you have a sense of like, um, if you see a map, I always call it like this one-legged buffalo, um, Ice Fort Cove is the nose and, um, it's the cove that's kind of closest to the railroad. So when he's talking about, um, one of my favorite images, I think in all of Walden is the fact that he calls this the vast blue fort of Valhalla. Um, which in Scandinavian mythology is like this hall of immortality. Um, and that's sort of what the ice fort cove is named after, like this big ice fort, um, where people are harvesting blocks of ice that get shipped all over the world. And, um, one of the, one of the marvelous parts of Thoreau's um, expansive reading is that he brings in all these cultures and like, that's the, um, that's the, the marvelous, or that's, that's one of the many reasons I'm drawn to Thoreau, um, is the fact that he does bring in all sorts of different cultures. The very last chapter, or the very last paragraph of this chapter, um, he has this great line, Thus it appears that the sweltering inhabitants of Charleston, New Orleans, of Madras, of Madras and Bombay and Calcutta drink at my well. Um, I bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, um, which is marvelous, but I, I haven't really seen this in commentaries, 
when he's talking about people um, who put ice in their drinks in Bombay and Calcutta, um, he's talking about colonialism. <laughs> he's like, I think that's, I think that's a British thing. Um, I don't know a lot about the culture of India in, um, in the 1800s. So I could be wrong and I hope I'm wrong. And I hope that if they wanted ice in their drinks in India, that they were able to get Walden ice. Um, but I think that he's, or I, th- I th- believe that the, um, that the people who were, <laughs> who were having ice in their drinks were the uh, colonizers. Um, and also I would say just from my, you know, so my, my personal experience, um, my mother, uh, and that side of the, my, my maternal line of the family, um, is from the Azores and I go to Portugal on a semi-regular basis. Um, and I would say that having ice in drinks is sort of a weird thing. <laughs> like it's available, but it's kind of like, this is the thing that Americans request. Um, so I'm not actually sure where it comes from. And yes, ice is not something that, that all, um, colonial powers, uh, that are, it's, it's exclusive to colonial powers because Portugal was definitely a colonizer. Um, but I feel like it's one of those, um, here's a weird habit. Let's figure out how to make, um, colonizers feel at home in a country that already has its own rituals. <laughs> and so they import a lot of, um, unusual things. And like that gets into, um, you know, the whole idea of food and different kinds of food and drink traditions. Um, you know, like there's a, there's a whole book to be written about, you know, like the transcendentalists and cookbooks and what they ate in the 1800s and, you know, like things that are yummy and things that are not. Uh, for Civil War reenactors, it's hardtack, and that's not yummy. <laughs> anyway, um, so um, I also noticed that I laughed when I was talking about um, Henry wanting to go out and measure something, and they launched him off on a cake of ice. I think that's kind of hysterical. You know, it's like. I um I almost wonder if if it was almost a practical joke where it's like, oh yeah, sure, you wanna go out there? Sure. It's like here you go. Did they give him like an oar or anything to get back? Like how are you how are you gonna go like you have no means of control if you're just like on an iceberg. Poor guy. Um another funny thing that he talks about in this chapter, phrenology the whole study of like the shape of the head is in relation to your personality. But a low and smooth shore proves him shallow on that side. In our bodies, a bold projecting brow falls off to and indicates a corresponding depth of thought. Now, um, Walter Harding calls it like a pseudoscience and yeah, it gets easily dismissed. Um, there is a whole a bunch of like academic institutional power behind the idea of pseudoscience. So like, it's something that we can laugh about now, but 
it's very important to understand the the importance that it was given and the whole idea that um, people studied this. And I think there was even an article in The New Yorker um, recently about how like everybody who was enrolled in any of the Ivy League universities were literally photographed naked, um, you know, in the name of science. Although looking back, it's kind of abusive and really gross. And that's what the article was about. It's like I was, um, I was abused without even realizing it because it was just part of the culture at the time. Uh, but like literally that was part of their enrollment, um, front and back, like completely naked and with your, um, I, I like, I, I think the names have since been removed from the photographs, but it's sort of like, this is the study. And this went like up until, you know, like from the thirties to the eighties or something. Like it's, it's one of those, those things where it went on for a ridiculously long amount of time. And then the photographs as physical objects were not as carefully stored as they should be. And they kind of showed up randomly somewhere, which is also how the article came about. <clears throat> um, and it's the idea of like, yes, it's the shape of your head and the shape of your body. And there are different things. And oh, yes, the white people or the Caucasian people are naturally perfect. And here's an example of a quote unquote perfect human being. Um, and everybody else is just like an anomaly, right? Or like we're going to we're gonna do somersaults to make sure that this theory fits. Um, and Louis Agassiz is, was also a proponent of this. So be careful every time you hear his name, because in the 1800s, he was thought of as very prominent. He was the head of um, biology, I think, at Harvard or like somewhere in there. Like he might have been the head of um, bio biometrics or whatever the, the equivalent was. Um, or human biology, something like that, because he was the one who um, is famous for taking lots of photographs of, you know, to essentially support the idea of phrenology, taking, um, you know, a wide variety of people and measuring their heads and using that to establish um, the, you know, quote unquote, credibility of the theory. Um, lately, he's also gotten in trouble for, or not in trouble, like, it's been um, brought to light that he took or he had taken, um, like maybe it was a graduate assistant who took the photographs, um, photos of enslaved people, um, especially a very famous photo of a gentleman who, um, who's uh, African-American and his back is extremely scarred. So if you if you know the photo that I'm talking about, um, it was him. And then, um, I think there's also a woman, I, I, I want to say they're related or something like that. Anyway. And I feel I, I should look up his name. Um, but yeah, he's sort of, um, Agassiz and Harvard, you know, are the owners of the image, but there is a lawsuit, I believe, um, to get his descendants, um, like the licensing fees or to make some kind of restitution um, because 
you know, Harvard has been, I believe, making money off of this image, which is was horrible in the first place. Um, and it's good that he's documenting the abuse, but it's also horrible that he's continuing to abuse this human being. Um, and he wasn't, you know, it, it's not like he was being like Jacob Reese, where he's kind of like, all right, this is how the other half lives. And let me show you an example of, you know, this is what being enslaved does to a human body. He was like, no, this is, this is what a, you know, quote unquote, inferior, um, human body shape is like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so like I said, look out for the word phrenology, look out for Louis Agassiz, um, and question everything, um, that you hear when you, um, hear Agassiz being praised. Um, so, oh, I also wanted to make a, a point when, um, Henry talks about the underwater spring. This is a new topic. Um, and he talks about the theory of, uh, doing colored sawdust to sort of see where the spring is going to emerge. Um, that is actually um, similar to a modern technique of figuring out what's going on. Um, and yeah, it does turn out there's an underwater spring and that Walden is essentially sitting on um, a, a lot of, um, of like, I, I guess an underground aquifer or something. Um, because there's no obvious um, connection to uh, a stream or something on the um, on the surface of the of the immediate area, um, and the level of Walden itself doesn't necessarily correspond to drought. And I think I mentioned there's um, one point where the the past summer um, where I had been on a on a tour and we were trying to cross, um, a very narrow part on the shore. And then later that summer, um, Walden had gone down. Um, so let's see what else I, um, anyway, I, I believe I have covered everything that I wanted to talk about, except for Walden's I think I had mentioned that last time. Here's the last point I'll make. Um, Walden's was actually a whole, um, a whole movement religion thing. And that's, I've actually, I put it out on Facebook and I, I got it confirmed that, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson's middle name is a family name and the family itself can be traced back to that original Peter Waldo. Um, and it's a, I, um, I have a genealogist, um, Meg Richardson to thank for that. Uh, she does lots of incredible research and that was one of the things she was able to confirm. So it's entirely possible. And I haven't really seen this in a lot of the Thoreau scholarship, um, that Thoreau is making a pun in, like he's, he, it's one of those like triple word score puns, right? So he's making a pun that there are many Waldens and that we are many Waldens, right? So that's the first surface level meaning. Um, and then he's making another pun on the Waldens, 
um, the Waldens is as the um, as the movement of ascetics, by the way, which is sort of what he is as a hermit. So he's also referring to that. Plus, he's also referring directly to Emerson, um, because I'm certain that with Emerson's family being so prominent in Concord, um, not only was it something that um, Waldo was probably um, aware of, but it was something that he had probably, this is me theorizing, um, that he had probably mentioned to Henry. Like, I can imagine this is sort of like, you know, a casual thing that gets mentioned. And I don't think that there is a direct connection between the name of Walden and anything to do with the Emerson family. Although that would be a really interesting connection to prove. But according to genealogy, yes, we can prove that um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, like Waldo is not just a first name, it's a family name um, that traces back to um, Peter Waldo. So I think that's actually a very innovative piece of research, super obscure, but I love rabbit holes. So um, there you go. It's, it's always fun to have a, a way to document um, a new piece of discovery. Or frankly, if you've heard this or if you've seen this documented anywhere, please contact me over Facebook or find me at transcendentalconcord.com or .org. Um, I, I optimistically got both of those because I've been hoping that I can get some funding um, from people who have money and who can throw some coins my way. Um, but I'm not really good at advertising or mentioning that there is a donate button on that page. But go ahead there. Or you can follow me or subscribe to the podcast um, and you can donate to Anchor um, to me through Anchor that way. Um, I'm not doing this to get rich. I'm literally doing this because uh, I love to share knowledge. And if you have knowledge that you would like to share, Facebook, the group, is the easiest way to contact me. Um, and it's Transcendental Concord as a group. So look that up. Um, we're getting close to the end. There are only two more chapters. So... Um, and I'm trying to work on them so that I will have done this whole project within two years, two months, and two days, um, which is going to come up on February 14th of 2003, because I had started on December 12th of 2020. So here we go. I will see you soon. Take care and be well. And go to, go to a, uh, a large body of water like Walden if you can.